0: Just what does hazardous liberty mean? In this episode, I'd like to explore that phrase a little. Not just the John Adams quote that I derive it from, but all the possible ways the phrase can be understood and why it's so central to all our lives. So, let's have a hazardous conversation. Trigger warning disclaimer. Hazardous conversations pushes rhetorical boundaries for acceptable political discourse. Listening to this program could have the uncomfortable side effect of provoking deep intellectual inquiry into foundational principles of liberty. Listener discretion is advised. So, there is this great portion of the Washington State Constitution found in Article 1, Section 32, and it reads A frequent recurrence to fundamental principles is essential to the security of individual right and the perpetuity of free government. Now, consider the beautiful and simple truth of that statement. It is saying that no matter who you are or what your position is, everyone must frequently examine themselves to see whether what they are doing, how they are behaving, is actually in accordance with not just their own personal set of principles, but that those principles themselves conform to larger, fundamentally universal principles. Now, when we don't do that, history shows we end up moving further and further away from the essential qualities that make us who we are, as individuals, as communities, as companies, as states, and as nations. It is Some of the meaning behind the phrase eternal vigilance is the price of liberty, and although it can happen in sudden violent jerks, it most often happens very gradually over longer periods of time, sometimes generational in scope. And just as the proverbial frog in a pot cannot perceive the gradual rise in the water temperature that eventually cooks him, the vast majority of our society is wholly unaware of the destruction of their own personal liberties. What then can we say when we recur ourselves to the principle of liberty? Well, I think that we should all be able to agree that the last few years have caused us to evaluate and re-evaluate what we think of that principle and how it is expressed in our lives, and more importantly, whether we truly have it or not. And I think that many of us have come to the somewhat startling revelation that perhaps we don't have nearly the degree of liberty that we thought we did, and the even more startling discovery that so many of our fellow citizens appear willing, eager even, to surrender their liberty at the drop of a hat. Now, Is this because the idea of liberty has always been a pipe dream, a fantastical illusion that sounds good in rhetorical epigrams but fails in the real world, or is it because we have failed to frequently enough revisit our fundamental principles to understand what liberty is? I, of course, believe it to be the latter. So then, what is liberty? John Adams defined liberty as, quote, a power to do as we would be done by. I prefer saying it as, liberty is not the power to do what we want, but rather the ability to do what we ought. Now, that particular phrasing has been articulated in some form or another by many different people, but it's difficult to attribute it to a specific originator or date when it was first said. But whomever said it first, or in whatever way it is expressed, it is referring to the same general concept, that which we call ordered liberty. For those that haven't heard that phrase before, ordered liberty is sometimes described as the constant tension that exists between regimented tyranny and the chaos of total anarchy. President Theodore Roosevelt put it this way, order without liberty and liberty without order are equally destructive. Now, we know that we are endowed with natural liberty from our creator, yet we also know that we cannot have a society worth living in without some sense of order. Problem is, too many people have come to believe that the only way to achieve this order is for government to place constraints on our liberty. Like, if we didn't have any laws against murder, that would make murders far more rampant than they are presently. Now there certainly is an argument to be made that punitive laws do in fact help to constrain mankind in this and many other regards. However, such laws are not actual constraints on liberty itself. For no one who has a proper understanding of liberty would ever argue a claim to have the liberty to commit murder. Just as there is no claim to the liberty to steal, or to enslave, or to commit fraud. In other words, a proper understanding of liberty acknowledges no claim whatsoever to any supposed liberty which acts to infringe, override, or extinguish the liberty of another. This is the heart of the short treatise by Frederick Bastiat called The Law. Now, this is a work that many of my more libertarian-minded listeners have doubtless read, but if you have not, I highly recommend that you spend an hour or so to look it over and digest what Monsieur Bastiat has to say on the subject. He actually spends precious little time dealing directly with the subject of liberty, as his work is called The Law. Instead, Bastiat explores the problems mankind has made for himself by addressing all the ways that mankind has devised to restrict the natural liberty that we all possess. Now some of these bastiatic knowledges begin as well-intended restrictions by self-stylized utopian designers of society, but most he casts on the heap of malicious meddling by petty thugs and tyrants. However, all of these restrictions he categorizes as perversions of the proper function of law, and therefore, immoral assaults upon our liberties. Now, I could spend a whole episode or more on parsing out the law and all of the wonderful points that Bastiat makes, and how his warnings and criticisms are playing out today. Someday I may do just that. But for now, it is enough to share a small snippet from his work that directly bears on this discussion. When he asks the question, what is liberty?, He answers in part, in short, is liberty not the freedom of every person to make full use of his faculties, so long as he does not harm other persons while doing so? And that, right there, is the principle that we need to recur ourselves to, over and over and over again. It should be visited multiple times a year in classrooms, in parades, in sporting events, in courtrooms, and in churches. If it were possible, we should bathe in it daily, lest the stench of tyranny begin to slowly leach from our pores. Because you see, when that begins to happen, we start looking for clever ways to cover the stench rather than get clean. That's when we look to a fancy law here or a little regulation over there to serve as a perfume or deodorant to the stench problem is it only makes the stink worse compounding the tyranny when we try even more or different laws and regulations to fix the stink okay that's enough of that metaphor and i think you all get my point so then what does the phrase hazardous liberty mean or entail Well, let's look first at the John Adams quote that I derived it from. As a refresher, here is the quote. Be it remembered, however, that liberty must at all hazards be supported. We have a right to it, derived from our Maker. But if we had not, our fathers had earned and bought it for us at the expense of their ease, their estates, their pleasure, and their blood." Now this quote comes from a 1765 essay that Adams authored called A Dissertation on the Canon and Feudal Law. He wrote it in response to the Stamp Act, and in defense of the actions that the colonists took in opposing said act. The liberty that Adams is referring to here is the same natural liberty that Jefferson would articulate and expound upon a decade later in the Declaration of Independence, and was in Adams' view, an inherently English right, fought for and preserved at the expense of the blood and treasure of countless prior generations. And because it is both natural and dearly bought and preserved, Adams argued, it required defense in the present day with no less risk and vigor. See, Adams understood that the principle of liberty is not and cannot be conditional. It cannot be understood as only applying to times in which it is safe. It cannot be restricted to and only for those who are fit to enjoy it. And it most certainly cannot be suspended ever. So when Adams wrote that, he was saying that in order to preserve the liberty you have, you must submit yourselves to whatever hazards may present themselves that wish to take it from you. And yes, those hazards may threaten your livelihood, or your wealth, or your life. But the preservation of liberty is worth that risk. But, while hazardous liberty does mean defending liberty from the external hazards that threaten it, also is referring to the conditions that living under liberty inherently create. Because guess what? Newsflash, living free involves risk. Living under liberty means that you have the liberty to fail. Now, you can use your liberty to mitigate that risk to varying degrees or to hedge the impact of any failures. But if liberty is to mean anything at all, It must mean the freedom to endure the consequences of your freedom, both good and bad. If government or anyone else robs you of this freedom to fail, through laws or regulations or other measures, it robs you of your liberty. And that is precisely what has been happening, not just in the last two years under COVID, but incrementally, over several decades at least, from ever-increasing and bloated entitlement programs for individuals to repeated instances of corporate subsidies and bailouts. Government has been actively working to restrict our liberties in nearly every facet of life, both by telling us what we can and cannot do, and in the disingenuous attempts at eliminating any consequences from the exercise of what liberties we still have. For example... Requiring that we have various forms of insurance, and then fining us if we don't have it. Requiring us, in many places, to obtain permission to utilize the land that we supposedly own. And then forcing us to pay extortion fees to obtain that permission. Heck, how about not ever even truly owning your property? You want to know if you really own your property? Try not paying your property tax and see what happens. How about the simple ability to grow your own food or to collect the rainwater that falls on your roof? Now, of course, not every place has such restrictions, or they may not have them to the degrees that I mentioned. But the mere existence of these types of laws and regulations is antithetical to liberty, and they are growing, not receding, in both their scope and reach. As people in the separate country of Washington know all too well, What happens in Seattle doesn't stay in Seattle, but radiates outwards to all parts of the state, and that is true for every major urban center where leftist ideology reigns unopposed. And unfortunately, wherever there are right-leaning politicians that do claim to oppose leftist ideologies, seldom do they actually work to reverse the damage that has already been done, when and if they ever get the chance to do so. As Todd Herman refers to them, these are the professional, shiny-shoed Republicans, the ones that never take a moral or principled stand on anything. Or when they do, they hedge and or triangulate it in some way, and it's only after they have absolutely no other choice but to do so. Even then, most will never actually articulate a principled position, just hide behind those that do. And such, I'm sorry to say, is the state of of the vast majority of the Republican politicians in the separate country of Washington. And that, among all other factors, is what led me to conclude that that state is a lost cause for the foreseeable future. And at any rate, will get a whole lot worse before it even begins to get any better. So, while I maintain a firm agreement with Adams that liberty must at all hazards be supported, rather than fight a losing battle there, I opted to hazard the risk of moving my family somewhere where I might be able to better preserve that liberty. We are experiencing the hazardous liberty of starting completely over, of attempting to live under greater degrees of liberty than we ever have by taking ownership of our own means of subsistence as much as we are able. And yes, we are hazarding the risk of failing miserably in that pursuit. Now, for those that are shaking your heads at my choice and angry that I abandoned the fight for liberty in Washington, don't worry. I will answer that charge in great detail with an upcoming episode in the near future. In the meantime, I will say that I do not view my choice as having run away from the fight, since I also maintain that there is no place that one can flee to where liberty is perfectly secure. As Reagan said, the United States is the last best hope for mankind. But I have retreated to a place where I might be able to better secure my own and my family's liberty, thus leaving me better able to engage the fight for liberty elsewhere. So, that is how I understand and employ the phrase hazardous liberty. It is a phrase that is not limited to the fact that defending liberty is hazardous, but also that living liberty is naturally hazardous. Not that you should purposefully create hazards for others in the exercise of your liberty, but that we all accept the natural hazards of living with and under liberty. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, I'd appreciate you rating it, liking it, shooting me a comment, and most importantly, sharing it with others who might like it as well. And if you haven't already, would you hit the follow or subscribe button as well, depending on what podcast service you use. In the meantime, be sure to check out HazardousLibery.com for additional content and to sign up for our email updates. So, until next week, God be with you all as you go about your daily lives. Keep the faith and keep up the fight.